have a Bible, there should be a hard-bound black one somewhere around you, and this morning's passage can be found on page 958. It will also be on the screen. Um, yes, thank you just for being a wonderful people. Thank you for the way that you love one another. Thanks for the way that you want to live out the way of Jesus together. Like, this isn't a show. This isn't hype. I mean, this is our identity as the people of God. And uh, just so excited to continue this series on being human. Uh, and I wanted to start out with a video that is a, a piece of technological wonder from <laughs> All right. So I was around in 1993 and I saw exactly zero of these. So I just want you to know, so, but I can't, I mean, not only is this just a piece of obsolete technology, I mean, that's, I mean it's crazy to me that, that somebody came up with that idea, but more than that, the reason I draw your attention to that piece of ridiculousness is what actually were they selling in that commercial? It wasn't just a headset, but they were selling a lifestyle, right, that you could do more and produce more, right? So I, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I started to hear about this term called multitasking, right? I mean, it was the air that um, I breathed growing up, that we could do all of these things, that if you um, actually could do more, you could produce more, and you could make more money, and you would actually be happier. So this idea of multitasking. Not only is that just something that we... <laughs> can laugh at from a commercial from 1993, but it also is something that is promised to us every day. Almost all of us have a piece of technology in our pockets that promises us that we can simultaneously make dinner, like order 10 things from Amazon and talk to someone around the world. It gives us the allure and the promise that we can be everywhere equally present, just like God, or that we have access to all knowledge. Last week, we started this series by talking about being human in the same ways that God has made us to be like Him because we're made in His image. This week, we're going to look at how do we connect with God in the ways that we are different from Him. God is different than us. He is self-existent. He is independent. He has always existed. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. But we as people are dependent creatures, right? But our society and our world is set up in such a way that it wants us to do more and produce more and to be like God in ways that we were never intended to be like God. So this is an invitation for everyone in this room to get in touch with the reason that God created you, to live in harmony with Him, to find rest for your souls, to 
get out of the lie that you have to do more and produce more, that your value is found in those things, but your value is found in the, the idea that He has created us to be like Him and live in communion with Him. I mean, it's amazing. So that's the 1990s. The 1950s and 60s, people's view of technology would be that one day technology would be so useful that people would actually work less and be able to enjoy their lives more. But what they failed to take into account was the idea that greed would take hold of people's hearts. So the fact that we can do more and produce more means that we will do more and produce more so that we can have more. But the casualty in all of that is our own souls. And so we're going to learn um, that there are ways to connect with God that are not just prayer and Bible study. We said this last week, it is vital to connect with God through studying your Bible and prayer. But if that is all that discipleship is for us, we will, <laughs> I mean, undoubtedly be pressed into the mold of the world. So, I mean, it, just say you spend 10 hours a week, like, attending Christian meetings and reading your Bible and praying. That is paltry in comparison to the thousands and thousands of messages that we receive each and every week that our worth and our value is found in what we do. So this morning, we're going to look at how do we connect with God through our limitations and the fact that God has designed us um, to need food. How do we connect with God through our eating and our drinking, and how do we connect with God in our sleeping? That's what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to just read one passage. We normally stand, but since it's just one verse, you can listen. It's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that not only are we like you, but we are different from you. And you have designed life to show us how much we need you. I pray that this morning would be an invitation to experience you um, in ways that, that many of us just press through. I pray that you would help disciple us into the way of Jesus, that we could recover our humanity, that we would not be pressed into the mold of this world, but we would be renewed in the transforming of our minds and it would work its way out in the habits of our lives. Um, that the coming generations would be able to look back and say, this was a generation that took a stand for what it means to be human. I pray that you would help us to do that. Uh, to do that, we need your help to understand and to apply this. I need your help to proclaim this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, the goal of this entire series is that you would find rest for your souls that you would be able to find freedom in being human. That idea of just being runs countercultural to everything that we value as a society. Being, not proving, not earning, not trying to validate yourself, not trying to atone for past mistakes, but just being. Understanding that God has created us and He loves us and we're meant to live in harmony with Him throughout all of our lives. And um, for most of us, if we're honest, life is not something that we receive as a gift. It's not something that we 
get to experience, but it rather feels like something that's happening to us, right? I mean, several days can go by, and it's not uncommon for us to say, where did the time go? I mean, it's, and it's because of the values of the world that are telling us constantly that you and your value is determined by what you do and what you have produced. But God has not designed us as his sons and daughters to live on razor-thin margins where we're just struggling to get by. Last week we looked at the truth that he actually wants us to have life and he wants us to have it in abundance and he wants us to flourish. So, but to do that, we have to seize the opportunities that God's given us. And I think for most of us, this series is about opening our eyes to see that we have way more opportunities to connect with who God is and what he's done than we normally think about, right? I mean, we're going to talk about um, two areas that most of us just assume, eating and drinking and sleeping. I mean, those, those things are just natural to us as humans. But as we look at the totality of Scripture, where you're going to see that those are things that God has hardwired into our existence as humans so that we would know Him more. And so the, the first thing that we're going to look at is eating and drinking. Eating and drinking was central to discipleship in the New Testament. So there's lots of ways to look at the life of Jesus. You could organize it around his teaching. You could organize it around his miracles. But you don't have to go very far in the New Testament, right? I mean, on every page, there's some kind of meal with Jesus, right? So we could organize Jesus' whole life around meals. If you were a disciple of Jesus, one thing that you would learn is how to interact with God around a table, right? So Jesus' ministry was always around a meal. His his first miracle, right? It was a wedding. There was a wedding in this room yesterday, and it is a beautiful occasion. And he made hundreds of gallons of wine to celebrate. And not only is he teaching that he is um, a, a new kind of wine that comes to satisfy humanity, but he also, in those moments, are teaching everybody in the room that there are moments in life that are worth celebrating right? There are, right? Because he didn't just give them the box wine that you get on the, you know, on the back shelf. I mean, he made the best, most tasty wine. And I mean, and, and the passage even says in the gospel of John, most of these people were already drunk and he gave them more wine, right? Because God, I mean, this is amazing. We have a God that loves for his people to feast, right? We often talk about the things that he wants us to withhold or the things that we don't engage in. But if you were walking with Jesus, he would go to parties. He would go to festivals. I mean, this is a God in the Old Testament that said, hey, I want you to take a whole week off of your life, stop working, stop producing, and I want you to throw the biggest party that you can imagine, right? I mean, what would our community do if we all took a, a week off and just celebrated the goodness of God. But that is kind of how God has hardwired life to be. So meals with Jesus would mean meals that would celebrate His goodness and His forgiveness and His kindness. But also He used meals to teach people what He was like. So you have a miracle where there's everyone that's been gathered listening to His teaching, and they're about to go on a long journey, and He's he doesn't want them to go away and to be weary. And so he multiplies bread and fish to teach them that he is just as important as the bread that they need to live life. So he's teaching people what he's like. So our meals in some ways should celebrate, in some ways they should remind us and help us reflect on who Jesus is. But there also were meals with Jesus that healed, right? I mean, 
all throughout the gospel of Luke. Tax collectors and sinners. Luke chapter 7, a woman who was forgiven of many sins comes in and she begins to weep at Jesus' feet and celebrate his forgiveness. I mean, it was at a meal that Jesus told the, the parable of the prodigal son where people that were far off and people that didn't want anything to do with God ran away from him were welcomed back as a father that was looking for a son. Meals that celebrate, meals that teach, meals that heal. And then on the night that he was betrayed, something that we're going to celebrate this morning, there was a meal that was commemorated to help us to remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And we're supposed to celebrate that meal together as his people till we celebrate the final meal when the victory comes and the kingdom of God swallows up the kingdom of the world and Jesus' victory over sin and sickness and Satan and death, that that is realized for the people of God forever. It, our whole life and our whole existence revolves around meals with Jesus, right? So if it was central inside of the New Testament and discipleship, it should be central for us as well. So we want to be able to slow down in our world that demands more, that wants us to produce more and see food and drink the way that God has intended us to relate. There's three common ways, I think, that we mostly deal with the uh, reality of food and drink. The first is food is just fuel, right? It's fuel for the body, right? Um, Statistics say that Americans eat one out of five meals alone in their cars, right? This is just a functional existence where um, that could be a healthy relationship to food. It could be an unhealthy relationship to food. I mean, I knew I was doing this talk this week, and there were at least two times where I was, I mean, severely tempted to just blow through lunch so that I could get more work done, right? Because at the core of who I am, I think my value is tied to what I can produce. And the ironic thing was, the reason that I was trying to work so hard was so that I could take a day off so that I could be with my kids on fall break. But thus, the machine of keeping producing and doing. And there is just this insatiable desire to do more and produce more. Not only that, but I mean, most of us, if you're in the business world, meals have been transformed into a commodity. Another way to do business, another way to make a sale, right? There's, this is a real opportunity for us to not just view food as fuel for the body. Also, there's another way that we commonly relate to food, and that's food being God, right? Where it, and I'm not just talking about overindulgence in food. I, I don't think that's the main problem in America. The main problem in America is when we begin to assign moral categories to food, right? So we say things like, I was good today, or I was good this week because I stayed on my 1,200-calorie diet for the day, right? So what are we saying in those moments? What are we captive to? It's the philosophy of the world that our worth and our value is tied to our body type and how we look. And I believe all my heart that God wants better for his children than to be, listen, we are fearfully and wonderfully made 
and we all have been hardwired by God. He has designed us. I'm not saying don't be healthy, but there is an over-fascination with what it means to, to look good in America. So food can become God. It can be this moral category of good and bad. So we don't want to buy into the cultural narrative. But the way that God designed food to work for us is that it is a gift, right? It is a gift from the generous God that has designed everything, right? So for Americans, I mean, we never have to wonder, are we going to eat? But it's usually what kind and how much. So we want to relate to food as a gift from God. And that's, that's what's being portrayed in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I want to talk about three ways God's given his people to relate to food that can help us in our discipleship. The first is the practice of fellowship, right? And this is where we gather around the table with our family and our friends. That word fellowship literally means sharing and participating in the life of Jesus. And, I mean, if there's, there's one thing that can promote health in your family, this has zero to do with the Bible, right? American psychologists are writing this all over the place. It's actually having a meal around the table with your family. Listen, if you want to promote physical health, emotional stability inside of your home, if you Listen, we are living in the loneliest generation in human history, right? All of our technology is making us more disconnected. And our relational health can almost be measured by who's around your dinner table, right? Everybody wants to have friends. Everybody wants to be known. Everybody wants to be loved. But these are opportunities for us to connect around the person and the work of Jesus. That doesn't mean that you have to do a Bible study every time that you eat, but it does mean that you are acknowledging Him as the source and you're acknowledging Him as the generous one and you're enjoying the gift of life. I mean, one of my favorite things as a father is to watch my kids when they're just having a blast on their own. Like, you don't have to turn it into this ceremony or this ritual, but it's just enjoying the gift that God's given us. But most of us are too busy to even gather around the table. And that's not to condemn us, but this is an invitation from Jesus to slow down and to experience the gift of life. So our relational health as families and as people inside of a church community can be directly tied to our relationships around a table. But it also means slowing down and enjoying the gifts that God's given us. So there was this just dramatic shift in the way that food was viewed in the Middle Ages. Before, in the Middle Ages, people started to pray to bless their food, like so you wouldn't get sick, and I understand that. I mean, things like the Black Plague and things like that, you wanted to actually be healthy. But before that, I mean, if you trace the scriptures back, and in ancient Jewish communities, people prayed after they ate because it was so good. There were flavors and textures and colors and variety, and they were, that was an opportunity for them to worship God, right? That's different than sitting in your car and scarfing something down, right? Listen, I, I do those same kinds of things too, but God wants to invite us into His relationship with Him where we are sustained by Him. We're sustained by the food that we eat. Now, 
Another one is not just fellowship, but also hospitality, right? And this doesn't mean that you have to release your inner Joanna Gaines or Bobby Flay, um, but hospitality is where literally that means entertaining strangers, bringing people into your home for the purpose of friendship, for the purpose of helping them understand who Jesus is, that they're somehow that they can observe your life and say, man, there's something attractive about that. So our tables are supposed to be places of ministry, right? And this isn't, yeah, we've, we've tried to make it something about impressing people or having the right centerpiece. And some people have those gifts and some people don't, and it's totally fine. But the practice of Christianity for the first 300 years the reason that it spread was because it spread around the table. And that was a way to say, I want you to be part of my life. I want you to be part of my inner circle. And so for us, in the loneliest generation in history, the way that we can make the most difference is by not just opening up our hearts, but opening up our homes as an expression of that. Not to impress people, but to show them the grace that we have received. So... The other, so fellowship, hospitality, and we've already mentioned this, the Lord's Supper, right? And, and I want our practice of this to be elevated. Okay, there are times when this meal should be somber and reflective, but that's traditionally been the way that the church has viewed this meal. But this is a meal that symbolizes his victory. This is a meal that symbolizes celebration for the people of God. Christ has died, but also Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That's what we're proclaiming as we take this meal together. We can experience His victory. So we're saying Jesus is Lord when we take this meal together. That He's bigger than the situations that we face. That He's bigger than all of the things that have come against us in the week. That He's bigger than our anxieties and our depressions. And we're taking this meal to proclaim His victory and our unity together as the people of God. He gives us this meal to disciple us and to help us to grow. Now listen, I know for, for some of us, right? I mean, there, it's inevitable that, that you're going to have to do business meals, right? I mean, my job requires me to <laughs> spend lunchtime with people, and I'm grateful for that. But we do want to have a practice where even if it's just for a moment, we eat our meals, and we say, this is a reminder to me that I need you. And not only that I need you, but that you have provided for me, right? And we get to, so, I mean, that's, multiply that throughout the course of your week. Every time that you eat, it reminds you that you are created, and there is a creator, and our discipleship grows exponentially. So Jesus is Lord over everything. We have a wonderful opportunity on November the 7th. We're going to clear out all of these chairs in here. We're going to gather. We're going to have a meal as a community from the oldest of us to the youngest of us because it matters to gather around the table. If I could get one that was round that would fill up this whole room, I would, but they we're, going to, we're going to put chairs in here because eating together matters. We want to celebrate, and then we're going to have a blast, and we're going to use our talents together, so please make that a priority. The next thing I want to turn the page a little bit. Now I want to talk about not just eating and drinking, but sleeping. Sleeping is another way that we are not like God. God never slumbers. God never sleeps. He never sleeps. I mean, it's ironic that God has designed life where a th- 
third of our lives are spent unconscious, right? You think he's trying to tell us something. <laughs> like, we need him. He is the only one that never slumbers or sleeps. Sleep may or may not be something that you think a lot about, but it's something that God has put into our lives to remind us that we need him. You may view sleep as something that you wish you could have more of to escape the demands of life. It may be something that you wish you could do less of so you could do more or produce more. But what God wants us to do is to receive sleep in the same way that we do food as a gift. Now, I've recently been watching um, the new Jack Ryan series on Amazon. Got any fans on there? All right? All right? You can... It's all right if you watch Jack Ryan. You're good. <laughs> like, yeah, I was really surprised with uh, John Krasinski in that role. can only see him from the office. But anyway, um, just in this, just in the, it, it kind of helps, as I was watching this series, you could kind of see the prevailing attitudes towards sleep. Um, he was suffering from PTSD in um, just... He was not able to sleep at night, and he was up, and he was trying to explain to his girlfriend, um, you know, when you're a part of the State Department, which was his cover, basically he said, you know, people, if you're up at working at 4 a.m., people respect you for it. Or if you go and you work out at 5 a.m., people think you're Superman, right? We think, oftentimes, like, those kinds of things can be a cover-up for just deep trauma that's in our souls. Sleep gives us an opportunity each and every day to take inventory of the things that are weighing on us. You may be able to busy yourself during the day, but there will come a moment each and every day when you have to put your head on the pillow and everything comes flooding back. And in those moments, it's key how we respond. And this is something that I'm trying to go in in and of myself. So sleep in and of itself is surrender to God, right? It's surrender to the idea that we can do more and produce more. Now, I want you to hear this, especially if you stay up a lot to work, okay? Your job, if you drop dead tomorrow, and this includes me, people would be sad for about two or three days and then they would replace you, right? None of us are vital to this machine called the world. But most of us, want to be able to do more and produce more. So sleep is a surrender to the idea that there is a God in the universe and we are not Him. Right? He wants to meet us in that. It is a gift to come to an end of yourself at the end of the day that only God is the one that does all of the things that He has to do on His to-do list. One study that I came across says that the average American work week went up from 41 to 47 hours from 1973 to 1990, which is not bad. That's about 14%. But at the same time, rest went down 37%. So if that was true in 1990 with, you know, the phone relief, I'm, I'm sure that's only increased today in our iPhone world. Um, but the reason that we can sleep is because God never sleeps. Nothing ever escapes his notice or his care. He never grows tired or bored or frustrated. He is God, so we do not have to be. Right? Listen to Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved. 
he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So he is our keeper. He never slumbers or sleep. He is God so that we don't have to be. He wants us to be able to experience the gift of sleep, the gift of knowing that he's God and we are not. David also says this in Psalm 4. He says, Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8 say, You have put more joy in my heart than when their, gr- their grain and wine abound, which is pretty happy. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So sleep is an opportunity to experience the peace of God, right? He's ruling and He's reigning over the world. He's ruling and reigning over our world. And He actually invites us to experience His care, to cast our cares and anxieties on Him because He cares for us. He's watching over us and protecting us. And it's His presence that guards us. He wants us to be able to lie down in safety. And basically what David is saying there is, I can lay down and sleep no matter who is at my door, no matter what memories come knocking, because God is fighting my battles for me, right? I mean, our anxieties most of the time, David Powelson says this, he says, most of the noise in our souls is generated by our attempts to control the uncontrollable, right? So there is a God, we are not Him. No matter how many times we think about things, we can't do those things on our own. He wants to free us from trying to be God and receive the gift of sleep. This is an amazing gift. Now, I mentioned earlier, sleep can be a window into our souls. And I think I've mentioned this in this room before, but sleeplessness has been a battle for me for the last couple of years. What God has taught me in the midst of that is sleep is an opportunity to find all of the things that I want to put my identity in to see that all of those identities pair, I mean, pale in comparison to the way that he has created me and designed me to be. Um, my wife has been a, a major source of encouragement in this. And, and one of the key verses she shared with me over and over again, is Psalm 127, and it says this. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. So there's this battle that goes on for me when I can't sleep. It's all of the things that I think I should have done, all of the things that I anticipate that I should be doing the next day. It's my role as a pastor. It's my role as a husband. It's my role as a father. All of these identities are battling and waging war in the midst of the dark and I mean, the truth is, as adults, um, we can be every bit as scared of the dark as children, right? Because that's when the voices come, and that's when anxiety comes, and that's, you know, in the midst of all of this, God wants to do major 
encouragement, and He wants to build up our souls. I love the end of Psalm 127, verse 2. It says, He gives His beloved sleep. When I can't sleep, it is an opportunity for me to not find my identity in all the things that are vying for my attention and to find my value and my worth as one that is beloved of God. Sleep is a way to encounter and rest in the love of God, right? That He loves us, that He controls all things, and He actually has us. Brennan Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, talked about a transformation that he underwent as he was on a, a spiritual retreat, and he borrowed this phrase from someone that was on the retreat from him, and it became a core part of who he is, and I want to share it with you. He says, define yourself as one beloved by God. God's love for you and His choice of you constitute your worth. Accept that and let it become the most important thing in your life. If I can make eye contact with everyone in the room, right? I know that everyone in the room believes this on an intellectual level or wants to. What God wants to do in the midst of this series and in the midst of our lives is move that from being a thing or a concept to that being most important thing about you. You are beloved of God. Everything that you experience anxiety and worry and restlessness over, He has. And then He goes on to say, the basis of my personal worth is not my possessions, right? We can be anxious about that. It's not my talents. It's not esteem of others, reputation, not kudos of appreciation from parents or kids, not applause and everyone telling you how important you are to the place. I stand now anchored in God before whom I stand naked. This is the God who tells me, you are my son, my beloved one. So, I would love to tell you that that truth has caused me to have every night where I can sleep well. But what I can tell you is when I meditate on that truth, it makes the other voices grow silent in its presence. So I think God wants to remind us in the midst of all of the things that tend to bring us worry, the greatest thing and the thing that will stand forever and all time, like most of the things that we worry about will be obsolete three weeks from now. And that's the truth of the matter, right? Much less in light of eternity that we have a God that loves us and that gave himself up for us. That's been raised from the dead and he's ruling and reigning over this planet. And he defines us as his beloved. So I just want to pray right now for a couple groups of people. Um, you can bow your heads. I want to pray for those that tend to find their value and worth in what they do or how they look in their body image. And I want to pray specifically for those that are having trouble sleeping, that you would experience God's nearness and His kindness. Father, I pray that right now, that just through the power of Your Spirit, that You would come and that You would be present. I pray that You would undo every lie about body type or body image and unhealthy relationships to food. 
You don't want us to live as slaves, but you want us to live as sons and daughters. I pray that you would set your children free to relate to food as a gift. I pray for those that are experiencing sleeplessness either because of their responsibilities or the importance that they think they are. I pray that you would help them to see that they're one beloved by you, that they can lie down in safety and sleep because you are with them. I pray that you help us not build our lives being conformed to the pattern of this world, that we would be renewed as we simply listen and respond to who you are. Thank you for loving us at the core of who we are, both the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that we are radically beloved of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to...